Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, this is the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon and Happy New Year to all snooker fans. Of course, the Championship League is underway, but the first real major event of the year is the Masters. The game's longest running invitation event. It starts on Sunday and I've sat down with Phil Yates to go through the Masters match by match. We're making our predictions. We're talking about the history of the event and we're making, uh, well, wild assumptions about who might come through the first round, who might eventually win the tournament. You can also, uh, on the WPBSA website, check out a uh, history I've written on the tournament. There's some great memories and I'm sure, despite the situation we're in, despite the fact that, of course, the tournament's had to relocate, as all the others have for now, to Milton Keynes, I'm sure there'll be more memories created by these great players over the eight days. So this is my chat. With Phil. Phil, much to discuss, but before we get to the Masters, uh, a lot of people tweeted me, including David Grace, who's a loyal listener, about one of the uh, the standout television uh, entertainments of the Christmas period, Garfield 2, a film that you were in. A, a very hurtful uh, episode in my life, actually, Dave, yeah. uh, financially, because I've got nothing for it. <laughs> and I didn't even realise I was in it. Basically, what happened was, and this story is incredible, but it's the total truth. I was at the tournament, Ian McCulloch was there, and he said, I didn't realise you were in a film. So, well, neither did I. Which one's this? And basically, his young daughter at the time had hired a, a video. That's how long ago it yes. was. And she said, Daddy, Daddy, there's a man on TV talking about you. Anyway, you rewound it. And, of course, the scene is that Garfield is lying luxuriating yeah. on this bed in this stately home in England. And they needed to provide, I suppose programming that was typical for the UK and at the time snooker was the perfect example and I was talking about Ian McCulloch against Mark Williams it's just one sentence but you can clearly hear my voice Um, so of course when Ian told me that I was in this film word hadn't got Garfield too and there it was so yeah um, how have you not sent an invoice that's what I understand well I mean it's just you know (laughs) I've only just finished therapy over it to be honest it was about 25 years ago it is actually quite a quite a funny film. Uh, Billy Connolly stars, and uh, no, uh, proud to be oh, in it. But I'm guessing com- I'm guessing Billy Connolly got paid. 
Uh, I would think so, yeah, slightly more than me. Well, I think if you got one pence, he would have got more than me, but there you go. It's a bit like a, you know, Bob Friend from Sky News might turn up in one of these, you know, big mm. sort of action films, but yes. I think he, he might have got to a few quid. Yes. Okay, well, let's move on. Uh, before the Masters, uh, we just talked about that. Of course, uh, Barry Hearn has been uh, finally given an honour in the New Year's Honours list in OBE. Um, long time coming. There have been two great servants for snooker behind the scenes that deserve royal recognition. One was Clive Everton who got the MPE mm. and of course Barry Hearn. I mean, what he's done for the game. When you think back, and it's not that long ago really, when you think back how awfully the game was placed, how badly it was run, how financially it was, you know, in the gutter. Players were playing six tournaments, maybe seven tournaments a year. You had to win a lot of matches to win any kind of money. That tournament in Malta we went to, I think the first prize was something like 18,000 quid when Ken Doherty beat John Higgins and it was a full-blown world ranking event. He came in and he's just completely, radically transformed the game for the better. And if you don't think he's done wonders, just look at this, this pandemic ravaged season, or what should have been a pandemic ravaged season. It's been salvaged. The guys are still playing for basically the same amount of money as they were last year, apart from the loss of the Chinese events. For the for the snooker players, I, I would say they should get a big portrait of Barry Hearn and stick it in the house every day and say thank <laughs> you, because what he's done for the game, well, it's it's beyond measure, actually. Well, he, the point is, as you say, about the pandemic, he's put more events on in the middle of a pandemic than some of the previous administrations managed in normal times. That's a fact. Um, and to me, I think also, and we could wind it out to other sports, the way he's you know, got hold of pool and darts and all these other, uh, boxing, all these other sports. What he's done is created great nights out for people. And I've seen it and you've seen it. People come away from them with a smile on their face. They've had a good night out. They've spent their money. They've got value for money. Um, it's not as, maybe as, as expensive as some sort of entertainments are. And, you know, he's created a lot of great memories for people. He's appreciated in snooker, as he should be. He's respected in snooker. But, you know, some other sports, particularly pool and ten-pin bowling, which I've been involved with this year, and I've really enjoyed the, the Weber Cup, the, the ten-pin bowls. Those guys absolutely love Barry because he's put their sport in the spotlight when other promoters haven't. Basically, in pool, matchroom is pool now. And with the ten-pin bowling, the Weber Cup, that production is so much better than anything you'll see anywhere else. So it's not just snooker, but obviously his first love was snooker through Steve Davis back in the day. And the job he's done, and the job that Matchroom have done, not just him, but Matchroom in its totality, has been absolutely spectacular. If I was a snooker player, particularly, particularly the ones who are in their 40s, it's just what he's done is improve their lives and improve their financial well-being and indeed their psychological well-being well more than tenfold a hundredfold yeah and also like again to the pandemic you know people have had something to watch you know snooker fans obviously the world championship got pushed back but we had it on eventually we had those five great weeks the viewing figures on all the channels bbc eurosport and itv were fantastic it's given people something to watch in the in these difficult times and of course they'll have the masters to watch now of course the first thing to say is of course it's been moved to Milton Keynes. I don't think anyone is that surprised. Uh, there's no hotel on site at Alexandra Palace. There's no hotel for several miles, actually. So to have a strict bubble with the 
situation in the UK worsening would have been pretty much impossible. It is a shame. I mean, I was watching actually over Christmas, Eurosport was showing various finals. I caught a bit of last year's actually that Stuart Bingham won. And fantastic atmosphere, just brilliant at Alexander Palace, um, you know, at the end, particularly after he won. Uh, but we knew there wouldn't be any, any fans here this year. And I'm not sure, I mean, snooker fans will have their own view. I'm not sure what difference it makes if you're watching it actually where it is, because I know for a fact they were not going to actually play it in the same hall anyway. They were going to play it in the theatre. So it would have looked completely different to the previous stagings there. I guess the main thing is it's just on. All norms at the moment go out of the window. It's infinitely better to get it played wherever in a safe environment than to play it where you want to play it. It's a shame, of course it is, but the decision was taken out of their hands. And not just for the Masters, I think for a whole variety of tournaments going forward as well. I personally can't see tournaments being played in their normal place <clears throat> until maybe the Crucible in April, if we're lucky. Yeah, and that's the other thing, despite everything I've just said about does it really matter, it would matter, I think, uh, with the World Championship. I, think, I do think that has to be at the Crucible. Now, they proved last year they could do that safely. They did have a bubble, let's hope uh, that happens again. One thing I do hope, though, next week is that the players are sensible because it can, you know, there's going to be quite a few days where they're not playing. If you win your first match, you have to wait, play next match. It can be boring, it can be frustrating, but they need to be sensible because there's a lot of people out there who are suffering massively. They've lost their jobs, they've lost their businesses. We have people working in the health service. I know you have family who work in the health service. You know, they're on the front line of this and they're not going to have a lot of sympathy with a lot of rich snooker players complaining. They're still playing for a quarter of a million pound first prize. So I hope that they recognise that. I'm sure most of them will and just get on with putting on a show for everybody. And also a £15,000 guarantee mm. if you lose in the first round. So, yeah, OK, it's a sacrifice, but it's a, a minuscule sacrifice compared with what certain people are doing. A lot of people are doing, millions of people are doing. And so I think they would look really bad, morally bad, if they were to complain too much about being in a situation where, as you say, they can win what you know, it's referred to these days as life-changing money. It is what it is. The point is, when we left Landudno last year at the Tour Championship, we just didn't know what was going to occur. We didn't know what the disease was. We didn't know how deadly it was. We didn't know whether there would ever be a vaccine. We didn't know whether the health surface was going to be overrun. We didn't know whether snooker was going to take place for a year, two years, whatever. We didn't know whether sport would take place. Yeah. We're in a much better situation sports-wise now than we were then. And as Boris Johnson continually says, there is light at the end of that tunnel. And I think that when snooker comes back to some form of normality and crowds are allowed back in, it's going to be like a, a pent-up volcano, like a, a champagne cork bursting out. People, having been deprived of seeing live snooker for so long, having been deprived of seeing football or whatever for so long, are going to turn up in the numbers and they're going to savour it even more. And to have the game continuing in whatever form, well, that's a godsend. I agree. One thing I would say, though, is, and I think people, obviously, they were discussing online about the fact it's moved to Milton Keynes, some in favour, some not. Actually, it's a bit of a red herring. The most concerning thing for me is there's no sponsor for this tournament. Now, this is the Masters, which I think a lot of people now accept is the second biggest event in the sport. Obviously, we've relied a lot on betting companies in recent years. They've taken a hit in the last year when, when sports stopped and have got other priorities. There may be, it may be that Matchroom sponsor it, but you know that's not the same as getting a sort of a, a big sponsor. And it is a concern because there's three revenue streams for snooker, really. There's broadcast rights, there's ticket revenue, 
and their sponsorship. Ticket revenue's gone for the moment. Obviously, the broadcasters are still paying, um, but if we lose sponsorship as well, you know, it is difficult. Now, thankfully, as we've said, Barry runs, you know, a, a good operation. They've got plenty of reserves at Matchroom. They can cover it, and prize funds have not been cut. All they've cut is these million-pound bonuses that were unlikely to be paid out anyway, but the actual prize funds have stayed the same for the tournaments on the circuit. That can't be sustained forever, but as you say, hopefully, you know, things will change as the year goes on. Um, but I've kind of said this before, you know, the way they put some of these events on a pedestal, if you're not going to get sponsored with the Masters, why would anyone sponsor any of the other tournaments? This is, this is an issue going forward, hopefully, that will be uh, resolved. Of course, Bet Victor are sponsoring various tournaments, Bet Fred sponsoring the World Championship. Um, but as it stands, as we record this, the Masters doesn't have a sponsor. But what it does have, of course, is a fantastic history. First stage, 1975. Uh, it was originally for 10 players, um, top 16 from 1983, so maybe more recent than people may remember. And actually, I look back, the BBC, you know, they only covered every day from 1984. So it, it wasn't immediately a top event. Its prestige grew and grew, I think, in the 80s, as snooker grew in the 80s. Um, and I think it's, it's sort of become, in my opinion, it's become the second biggest tournament, as the UK Championship has sort of gone a little bit the other way. Because the Masters format has essentially been enhanced. I mean, they actually made the matches slightly longer, best of 11s, the final slightly longer. UK's gone the other way. Um, and we saw last year when the work, work crowds, you know, they, they made uh, the, the big effort with the hospitality. I think watching on TV, you'd look at the Masters and you'd say, that's a good day out. Absolutely. I think, indisputably, it is the number two event in snooker. Obviously, the World Championship's number one. I don't think the UK Championship, indisputably, is number three. Mm. You could make a case out for it being number three, but there's other uh, events coming up to, to challenge that. But the Masters is fantastic. I went to my first World Championship in 72 when I was, well, nine years of age. Went to one session uh, at Sully Park when Higgins and Spencer played. My father took me to the Masters, I think from 77 onwards for about four years. And I remember one year we got tickets for this particular day and snow descended on the West Midlands and we couldn't make the journey down and I was absolutely distraught. I mean, I can remember crying over this. I was just so distraught. I was probably maybe 14 and I was oh no the worst thing possible missing the Masters as soon as you walked in there you just knew there was an aura about it because all of the top players were there mm. the crowds were there the atmosphere was second to none and I remember we went to one match I can't remember what year it was when you're that young you can't but it, Alex Higgins played Ray Reardon and he was absolutely brilliant Higgins so um, uh that, that's my memories of it and ever since then it's sort of developed into well I, I think the greatest tournament to market the game not just the game itself but its potential to host uh, wonderful hospitality suites and to get corporate firms involved because that's what the game needs going back to your um, suggestion about sponsorship yeah and you know it's almost sort of you're almost legally obliged to say now every match is like a final, but it is because what's changed, of course, under Barry Hearn is the ranking system. So it used to be your ranking hell for the whole season. So you get people going to the Masters, they might not have won a match. I mean, Alain Robidoux one year when they hadn't won a match all season, completely out of form, wasn't one of the best 16 players in the world at that point. They are now. You know, I know the cutoff was after the UK, but it's actually the top 16 now as we speak is actually that, that same 16 uh, players so they're all players who, who are in form and, and you know they're, they're, it's the elite and there's nothing look it's absolutely right that we have tournaments for everyone but there's nothing when we're showcasing the best of the best no absolutely not but there's been a lot of talk about you know should the Masters be made a world ranking event 
because I suppose logically there's no reason why it couldn't be because people qualify from the rankings and we've seen the the Tour Championship, the, the Players' Championship, the World Grand Prix, you know, people get in off the one-year list, so why not be able to get into a ranking event off the two-year list? I've got no particular objection to it being a ranking event other than this. Why change your winning formula? It's that invitation event, it's that aura, it's that history. Why change something that isn't broken? Well, it wouldn't make it any better. No. It wouldn't make it any better. It might, arguably, might make it worse, actually. Yeah. Um, anyway, what we're going to do, we're going to go through the draw, and for what it's worth, we're going to predict the, the winners of the first round matches. Now, I remember, remember last year, there were a lot of upsets in inverted commas. I mean, I've said every match is like a final, but some players you fancy more than others. Defending champion is Stuart Bingham, became the oldest champion last year. Um, he plays Tetchara Nu, who's the first Thai to play in the Masters since James Watt and I. In fact, he was the only other Thai. That was back in 1999, so 22 years. Um, he's a bit of an unknown quantity. We know how good he is, Tetchara. We know how quick he is. He's not going there with a big crowd, which you could work one or two ways. You, it could have inspired him, because they get behind him, I think, the way he plays. Or, first appearance, he could have, he could have been overawed. Um, what, what do you think of that one? I think it's interesting, this top quarter, because Murphy and Williams are in it as well. None of those players are really in form, but one of them's going to be in the semis. I'll precursor everything I'm going to say here by saying this. The two tournaments every year that are the toughest to predict, not just who's going to win it, but each individual match, Masters and the shootout. Shootout for obvious reasons, the format. The Masters, because every match, as you say, is top quality. And any match, whether it's at the English Open, Welsh Open, wherever, involving Tepchara and New, that is the real time form squiggle which indicates unpredictability. He's one of those players, he's best, he's so much better than he's worst. But having said that, I think that also applies to Stuart Bingham. Now, we had a little dress rehearsal of uh, Bingham Unnu in the Championship League, and Bingham made a 147. Has that sent a message? I don't know. What I will say is both of them could win. Maybe, maybe Unnu will be under a slightly more pressure because he's not used to playing in that kind of environment for so much money from the first round onwards. Also, I think Bingham will be highly motivated as the defending champion. So, I'd say Bingham would be my favourite, certainly, but not at a very short price. I, I'm tipping Bingham, and I do think one thing in his favour is he's not starting out, which sometimes, it's not set in stone at the Masters. The World Championship, if any champs, starts out. Sometimes they do the Masters. Playing that first match with all the attention on him, you know, that would add pressure. The fact that there would have been a few matches before that may help him. I think he's, I think Tech Chai, I love watching him. He's a little bit of an erratic player, and you know, if you're going for sort of it's quite a long match, best of 11. I think Bingham, with his experience, may get the win, but you know, anyway, these are just fun predictions. Uh, next match again, you know, two former champions, two world champions, Sean Murphy, Mark Williams. Neither player's shown a lot of form. Sean's had problems with because he lives in Ireland, all the coming and going when he was over there, when he was back home, he couldn't practice. Obviously, you know, he's got two young children, he was missing them when he was at tournaments, having to hang around in Milton Keynes. Mark Williams doesn't seem to play that much. You know, he's pulled out the Championship League. We haven't seen him, I think, since the UK Championship when he had that extraordinary beard. Um, so it's one of those, again, one of them's got to win, but at the moment, neither of them are necessarily in form. We just talked about Tupchara New against Stuart Bingham being very hard to forecast. I think this match is the ultimate X factor, purely and simply because, as you say, they're both lacking competitive reps just not been involved in snooker for a number of weeks. And going into that environment, which is highly charged, 
no crowd or, or crowd. I think it's really, really tough to say who's going to win that one. Murphy's played very well at times this season, but at other times he struggled. As for Mark Williams, well, he's got one thing on his side. He's fresh, mentally fresh. So maybe that could be a factor. I'm probably going to just say Williams here because Murphy's career seems to go in cycles and the the highs are very high and the lows are quite low. And I just get the impression that this season might be a low point for him. Of course, he's so good and his cue action is so phenomenally straight that when he starts playing well again, the highs will be achieved. But right now, I would say he's a little bit susceptible. So I'm going to say Mark Williams. Well, I hope we don't agree on all of them, but I, I, I do agree. I, I just think Williams, even when he's out of form, he's a very wily player. We know that, a lot of tablecraft. He can win bad matches, and that's, that's a compliment. That's not an insult. He can win matches when he's not playing well. You sort of forget how he's won them, um, and it may be that that's what happens. Um, let's move on. This, uh, this is, I think, a match that could be very close. Mark Selby, Stephen Maguire, um, they had a great match last year, I think, at the Players' Championship. Uh, Selby, of course, three times champion. I think one of the interesting dynamics about this is Maguire, you know, last time he was here in Milton Keynes, he completely lost the plot. I mean, he had, you know, the thing, I think we should say, for, you know, people say Milton Keynes is central. It's not actually if you live in Scotland, it's a seven hour drive. They can't come down together because if you share a car, you know, if the other guy tests positive, you're out of the tournament. Um, and sort of the coming and going that, that he did, he clearly did get to him, he smashed the pack against Zach Surety and uh, the Scottish Open and was very clear afterwards he didn't like uh, the whole setup. Obviously, he's had, you know, a month to, to get over that but he's playing Mark Selby and Mark Selby won't be like that Mark Selby is playing some of the best snooker I think I've ever seen him produce mm. that is a much more easy match for me to predict because of all of the factors you've just said Stephen Maguire has won a tournament of course in Milton Keynes a very very big one the Tour Championship won the bonus as well the, the Coral Series bonus so he is a winner here but I think over the last few months the constant travelling, the constant isolation in this hotel just doesn't suit him. And I think it's ground him down. Hopefully Christmas will have maybe cleared some of those thoughts away and he can start afresh. But you have to say Selby's favourite there, based on the way Selby's played this season, which has been, for the most part, fantastic. I agree with all that, but I'm going to go for Maguire. Purely because, actually, in this tournament, if you look back, his record is really good. I know he's not won it, but uh, he's got a good record of beating, actually, top players early on. And there will be upsets. So even though I kind of think Selby will win, I'm going to stick my neck out and go for Steve Maguire. Remember, we're not wagering here. It's all just, it's all just good fun. Uh, final match in the top half is Neil Robertson and Yan Bing Tao. Yan Bing Tao making his debut. So, uh, you know, again, it's a shame that it's not in the usual way with the crowds, but he's in the tournament. I think he's an interesting player because he's sort of, he's talked about as if he's kind of, I've heard people say, you know, he's gone backwards, but I don't get that at all. He's 11th in the world, this is his highest ever ranking. He won a ranking event last season. He was in the final of the Players' Championship, which is a big tournament. Um, you know, got through the first round of the World Championship. He, he's, a, he's a different player, I think, to a lot of the other young Chinese. He's not all about attack. He's very stubborn. He can grind it out, which is a good, good skill to have. Um, and he beat Neil Robertson in the UK Championship last season. Yeah, I think Yang Ming Tao, for me, in terms of talent level and in terms of the way he imposes himself, is about the same level, which is a good level, as someone like Zhou Yulong or maybe even Zhao Zintong, but he does have the achievements to back himself up, that's the thing. I really do think Robertson's going to win that match though. I think the way he's played 
this season at times has been tremendous as always and he's one of those players who puts a great amount of store on what he regards as the biggest events he's definitely not done himself justice in the world championship there's no doubt about that although he won it 11 years ago now I think he'll put a lot into this Masters campaign I think it's very interesting actually that he's playing together with Mark Selby in Group 3 of the Championship League so he's going to get two days of hard competitive match practice before the Masters begins I think that will really help him and I would make him uh, quite powerful favourite to win that match actually yeah it's interesting he lost in the first round last year but I think it was the first time in 10 years he lost in the first round of the Masters I always wonder about how he get on I mean he was the first winner at the Alexander Palace actually in 2012 but because he, he goes away over Christmas to Norway um, and inevitably as a holiday he doesn't necessarily practice in normal times does he lose a little bit of sharpness on the other players well we're not in normal times are we like you say he's you know he's had a fantastic season I think he does he, he's interesting he was talking to Rachel uh, on Eurosport about she was talking about the Triple Crown tournaments and this was before he won the UK and he said well people talk about those but you know I won the China Open which he actually said was the second biggest ranking event I won the Champion of Champions he said these are majors as well but then when he won the UK it was back oh I'm so proud I've won the, the Triple Crown events again so and, and I like that actually because you've got to use whatever you can and, and what he's got is great sort of positivity about himself about his game um, and I'm with you I do fancy him to win that match into the bottom half, and the bottom half is brutal, I think, actually. If, you know, they're all great players, I know, but the bottom half, there's some real big hitters here. And we start, of course, with Judd Trump against Dave Gill, but that's actually the first match on Sunday. I mean, Dave last year played really well on his debut, got to the semis. His form has collapsed since, let's be honest, it has. Trump's form has held up sensationally. I mean, let's be honest, if Gilbert wins that, that's a major upset. If you listen to my commentaries on snooker for, God, 15 years you'll know that I'm a massive Dave Gilbert fan. I think he plays in a beautiful fashion, looks good, and when he's at his best, he's a match for anyone. The problem is, he's not at his best at the moment. He would be the first to agree with that. He's a realist, Dave. He doesn't beat about the bush. He knows he's not had a good season. He's had a terrible one, in fact. Don't know what the reason is, but there is a reason. And right now, I think he's very vulnerable to a heavy defeat by Trump. In normal circumstances, I'd be looking at that as a potential banana skin for Trump because I really rate Gilbert. But form for him, certainly pre-Christmas, by his standards, by his recent standards, very bad. Trump, of course, he did lose the first round last year, but it was to Sean Murphy. I mean, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like a sort of massive upset because won the Masters two years ago. You know, he's coming good week, on, week in, week out, isn't he? And he'll be motivated, as everyone will be, at the Masters. I can't, I can't see past him, I agree with you. Next one, though, is interesting. Conor Wilson, Jack Mazowski. They played last year in the first round. Wilson won 6-2. Because we saw Jack in the last event before Christmas. Um, left it late, but in the end played great in that final against Trump. And, you know, it, it looked all, for all the world to be 7 all. Trump made a great clearance for 8-6, gave him some breathing space. Um, he's, I thought... It might have been his night, the way he was coming back. You know, he was playing really well. Credit to Trump for the way he held on. But could he maybe now have turned the corner? Because that's definitely the best he's played in a final. Yeah, and the way he played in the semi-final also mm. was really, really encouraging. It's encouraging for all of us because you need people like Jack Lazowski to do well. If he were to break through and maybe win a couple of big tournaments or even one big tournament, I think it would be phenomenal for the game as a whole, not just for him. Having said that, I think in Kyron Wilson, he's got... An opponent who is, well, it's the ultimate clash of styles. 
And I think Wilson's got a very good record against Judd Trump head to head. And Lusiansky is, in many respects, very similar to Trump. So I think, from Wilson's point of view, I don't think he'll be intimidated. No. Having said that, if Lusiansky plays his best, and he plays his best for four tournaments, he could be Masters champion. That's how good he is. Mm. People don't realise just how good his best is. It's phenomenal. I will say, I fancy Wilson, but only slightly. I'm going to go for Jack. I think this environment may help him, actually, slightly, because he admits himself he gets very nervous. He's aware of people watching him. He's not the best at shutting all that out. Well, there's no crowd, um, so there's no one literally in the arena watching him. Um, and, yeah, I just think, you know, he played so well in the last event. Let's not forget how it ended for Wilson with that uh, match with Ronnie O'Sullivan when that incredible shot, you know, when he went in off the pink, probably the worst shot of the year. I'm sure he would agree with that. Um, I think it could be an interesting one, that. It's a clash of stars. I'm just going to edge towards Jack Lazowski. Two matches left. Uh, John Higgins, twice champion against Mark Allen. John Higgins, he's a twice champion. Now, most people, if they won the Masters twice, that would be like a career highlight. But he's also lost a lot of early matches in the Masters. Mark Allen won it three years ago, but hasn't won a match since. Two first-round defeats. I think that's possibly the toughest of the multiple. Yeah, definitely. The thing with John Higgins is, these days, and I think it applies to every single player past a certain age uh, range, you just don't know what they're going to do from day to day. And I think he would be the first to agree with that himself. Uh, as I said before, we're sitting here doing this podcast at the Championship League, and he started off the Championship League in absolutely fantastic fashion, really, really good. So hopefully that's a good sign. The thing with Mark Allen is, and I think it's a recurring theme, but it's true, he's one of those players who, when he plays his best, can be absolutely inspirational. So I'm not going to ever write him off against anyone in any match. And of course he does have a, a tournament win under his belt this season, the champion of champions. Wouldn't it be ironic if he were to win the Masters as well, which is well within his capabilities. Oh. And then you have him winning the champion of champions and the Masters. Undoubtedly, the two biggest invitation events in the game, but in terms of ranking points, with oh. absolutely nothing to show for it. Yeah, although his bank balance would, uh, would, would be pretty healthy. So, uh, who, who do you fancy then, uh, overall? In that, in the in Alan, that match, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to say Alan, but just marginally. I, I agree. I think it'll be close. And I think you're right with Higgins. You just don't know these days. You know, he, he, the consistency maybe isn't there as it once was. Um, he's got this new cue. I think he would have worked hard with it. But, I mean, Alan's a very tough drawer, isn't he? He really is. But uh, that'll be an interesting one. I think that could be, like I say, possibly the match of the round. Although a lot of people have said the last one will be uh, Ronnie and Sullivan, Ding Jun Wee. Of course, they played in a Masters final. And I think when the draw came out, a lot of people said, you know, for Ronnie... A tough draw, which it is, but you look at the head-to-head, it's 16-4 to O'Sullivan. So, you know, t- I know Dings beat him at the World Championship, the UK Championship, beat him in a ranking final, but it's 16-4. Absolutely, it's a tough draw, because Ding Junwei is a world-class player, and he could easily have been a world champion. He's not been, but he could have been. So, absolutely. But the problem is, you see, with the Masters, every draw is tough. Yeah. Comparatively, with the other people he could have drawn, I think it's a good draw. As you say, head-to-head-wise. And also, Ding's form, apart from winning the UK Championship the season before last, you know, it's been really barren. At times, he's looked okay. Obviously, he's staying in this country for an extended period of time now, away from his, his wife and child, which is a terrible sacrifice for him to have to make. 
Does that mean he's distracted? Does that mean he's demotivated? Maybe, but what it does, it gives him the opportunity to practice more. Now, if Ding is at his best, O'Sullivan could have a real problem there, especially if O'Sullivan continues to produce the form he showed in the World Grand Prix, which I thought was one of the, the worst tournaments I've ever seen him play in, in many respects, considering that he was trying. He was really trying hard, and he just couldn't generate his normal brilliance. Now, I just get the feeling he's the greatest player ever. I get the feeling he will have gone away over Christmas, and I might be completely incorrect on this. I don't know. I've got no idea, no, no inside track, just speculating. I get the feeling he'll have gone away, tried to work hard on his game to come back for the Masters and be like he normally is, which is an absolutely extraordinary force. If that's the case, O'Sullivan's a big favourite. If he continues to struggle like he did in the World Grand Prix and Ding has practised a lot over Christmas with nothing much else to do, then maybe Ding could win that one. But I will say O'Sullivan. Yeah, I mean, I tend to agree, but you never know with Ronnie, obviously. Um, I mean, he didn't play in it last year and no one really still knows why. I mean, I, I think everyone has their theories, but he didn't play in it. One of his sort of claims was that, you know, and this was before the pandemic, he said, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a sick building, you get ill when you go there. But he still went there to do Eurosport analysis, so that didn't really make sense. Good to see he's back in. Of course, he's the record champion, seven Masters titles, a lot of finals as well. Um, again, for him, it's a different experience to walking out in front of thousands in a, in a big London venue, to walking out in front of nobody. Um, he's got a lot of respect for Ding, and in a way, that, that could be a problem for Ding. He's not going to mess around against him. I think Ronnie, you know, he's at a certain level where he can get to semi-finals not playing well, he can get to finals not playing well, and I would argue he has done this season. Um, but it's then getting over who you're playing in the finals. And at the moment, we've got Trump, Selby and Robertson, who are far and away playing the best snooker on the tour, those three players. They're winning the big titles, and Selby's beat Ronnie in a final. Obviously, Trump beat him in that semi-final and, and the Northern Ireland final. So it's whether he can get back to that level. Now, it's only August that he won the World Championship, so it's not like it's been a real barren spell. It's literally the end of last season, a few months ago. You always get the feeling at any point you can click back into life, and why not in this event where he's had such a, a great record? Um, so I, I do kind of fancy him there, but you know it's a very tough section. I mean, he could play potentially Higgins. By the way, John Higgins, I meant to mention, he sets a new record uh, this year: twenty-seven successive appearances at the Masters. Now, Jimmy and Steve played there twenty-seven times, not consecutively. So that just shows an extraordinary record of achievement. Just I, I said this on commentary yesterday, actually. There's no sign of him dropping out of the top 16 at all. Sixth in the world, John Higgins. You know, Ronnie was out because he, he didn't play for a season. Um, and, of course, he's not played in a couple of the Masters over the years. So if it's going to be Higgins O'Sullivan, I think we'd all enjoy that. That would cheer everyone up. But we, we just don't know. I mean, it's a very tough section. And that's why, for me, we're going to predict our winners now. I'm going to look to the top half because I think it's, I think it's a slightly easier half if, if there is such a thing in the Masters. My choice, for what it's worth, is Neil Robertson. Uh, we saw him win the UK Championship in dramatic fashion. I think it was inevitable that maybe he wouldn't then push on in the immediate events. I know he pulled out the Scottish, lost first round of the World Grand Prix. Robert Milkins played very well against him. I quite like his draw. Um, he might play Selby in the, in, the, in the next round, but he's beaten him a few times this season. Um, so for what it's worth, and I apologise to Neil if he's listening, I'm tipping Neil Robertson. OK, well, I'll start off by saying who I would like to see win. I would like to see Ronnie O'Sullivan win it because over the years... I think the greatest Masters achievement undoubtedly was Stephen Hendry winning mm. all of those Masters in a row. But there are three players who've electrified the Masters over the years. Alex Higgins, 
I saw that with my own eyes as a, yeah. as a youngster. Phenomenal. In a, in a different league in terms of energising the crowd. Well, they used to, I mean, they literally would run into the, storm the stage after yeah. matches. Yeah, so, <laughs> Eggins first, then Jimmy White. Yeah. The 84 semi-final against Kirk Stevens, perhaps the best-known Masters moments mm. of all time, the 147 from Stevens, then the, the wonderful break from White to wrap it up. So you've got Higgins, White, and now O'Sullivan. They are the three players mm. who've done more for the Masters than anyone else. So I would really love to see Ronnie come back to his best and win it. I do have grave reservations about whether that's going to happen, though. I hope I'm incorrect. My personal tip would be someone I think is really trending nicely. Two things I like to see in a player when they come into big tournaments. One is confidence and one is consistency. And in my book, one player stands out in that. Well, two, obviously Joe Trump, but he's got confidence and consistency all the time. The other one, and my pick, Mark Selby. Okay, interesting, because of course he could play Robertson potentially in the quarterfinals. Of course, they've won it before. I mean, Mark Selby, a three times winner. Robertson's won it. You know, a lot of former winners in this field. A lot of great memories as well. We'll just wrap up, maybe talking about a couple of them you mentioned there, obviously, 84. I think we what the, the, the Masters we remember are the close finals, aren't they? And, of course, Paul Hunter as well. We, we must remember him at this time. And the trophy, belatedly, was named after him. He won three in four years, all in deciders, all with comebacks. Um, we've not had a, a close final for a while, though. Paul Hunter... Myself and a, a lad who worked for the Daily Mail called Pete Ferguson had an idea just after Paul's uh, death that they should have the trophy named after Paul Hunter. It just seemed so right because he, he did so much for the Masters. He was more synonymous with that tournament than any other. The idea wasn't agreed upon, but as soon as Barry Hearn came in, it was. Well, not actually, not as soon as. It's only, it's only about three years ago. Okay, it? all right. Well, Barry Hearn came yeah. in and made the decision, which should have been implemented well before. Mm. And I'm really glad it has been because what a loss it was for the game. I, I just think the Masters has got so much history that we should look back at these great moments all the time because it, what it does... It actually enhances the tournament now, mm. doesn't it? If you look back at all the great moments. For, for me, I think it's a, a moment I talked about before, the, the, the Kirk Stevens 147. That's my, my, my personal favourite. Because 147s then were as rare as hen's teeth, weren't they? Yes. <laughs> um, and it wasn't just the fact he did it. It was the way he did it and what it meant to him. Um, you know dressed very flamboyantly as well and he knocked in some fantastic shots so that's my my, my personal uh, high watermark as, as far as the Masters is concerned I think the undoubtedly the achievement was Hendry winning one after another after another because what you've got to consider is back then it was a very hostile atmosphere for oh, yeah. Hendry yeah, people yeah. didn't want him to win yeah, yeah. he was booed when he went into the arena but, but generally speaking I just hope that you know this year's although it's going to be very, very different, lives up to its predecessors. I think I'm right in saying Paul Hunter was the last uh, first-time winner to defend the title, because that's what Stuart Bingham's looking to do. I'll just throw a couple into the mix, because they feature players, three players who are still in the tournament. Of course, Mark Williams on the respot in 1998. I mean, that was extraordinary. And even Mark got nervous. That's how, that's how tense it was uh, against Stephen Hendry. And then 2006, possibly the best ever final, um, last final at Wembley Conference Centre... John Higgins 
sort of if you wanted to explain John Higgins's career to anyone, you just show them the clearance he made against Ronnie O'Sullivan, sixty nil down, took a, took on a red to the right middle, wasn't clear if he hit it hard enough. It hung on the lip. Everyone was holding their breath. Dropped in, cleared it with sixty four under intense pressure. You know, thousands of people, most of them on Ronnie's side, probably in London, uh, millions watching on TV. Fantastic, and of course those two, well, all three of those players are still going strong and. You know, it's great to have that continuity. It's great to see the new faces as well. It should be a great tournament, despite we know the situation we're in, but it should still be a great event. Yeah, and the Masters also, in a very niche way, serves as a real, um, a really good focal point for us commentators, and I do it all the time, explaining just how good the standard is these days. <laughs> Here we go. Perry Manns is going to get a mention. Well, he is, he is, <laughs> but not just that. How good the standard is these days, to compare it was... Back in the day when the Masters first began. Now, yeah, Perry Mans gets rolled out. He won the Masters without making a single 50 break. 48 is highest. Yeah. In the entire tournament. Yeah. I mean, that is, that is just incomprehensible, isn't it? Yeah. Well, in, now it is, yeah. yeah. There won't be a match one without a 50 break now. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, in fact, there was a Masters a few years ago where there was a century in every match apart from one. Yeah. And they actually, the, the bookmakers actually do a betting market now. Will there be a century in every match? Mm. Which is, and it's quite conceivable there will be. But the other point I was going to make was, from 1975 to 78 inclusive, the first four Masters, there wasn't a single century. No. Not one. Well, the year Perry Mans won, there were two centuries. Here's a question to finish with then. Who were the two players who made... I don't know who made the first one, because they were both in the quarterfinals. But who were the two players who made the first two Masters centuries? We're talking 1979. Eddie Charlton? No. He's one, one was... I think they, no, they both won it. They both won it in the early days. Really? No. I'm doing well here, aren't I? You're just... You're just I'll I'm tell, just picking names. I'll t- Alex Higgins and Doug Mountjoy. Right, okay. So, yeah, but, but there were only two that year. You know, I mean, how many there'll be this year, we don't know. Probably over 30, I'm guessing. And Doug Mountjoy, of course, won his win in the Masters came very shortly after he won the World Amateur yeah. Championship. That was a great achievement. I think he was a late call-up, because he wouldn't have been... One of the wouldn't one of, wouldn't have been one of the top ten in the world, so I think he replaced someone or something. But that's again, you know, mm. the, the changing of the eras. If somebody wins the World Amateur Championship yeah. nowadays, or you know, the WSF Championship, and a year later wins the Masters, that would be mm. incredible. Okay, well, there we are. That's what we think. Um, it all starts on Sunday on the BBC and Eurosport. I think Hazel's back for the BBC, which which would be good for them. Um, but anyway, it's all live on the eight days, and uh, let's see what happens. We, you've heard our tips. I'm sure everyone's got their own opinions. I think the bottom line is settle back and enjoy it. We all need uh, something to, to entertain us at the moment. Thanks, Phil, and thanks, everyone, for listening. Sports Social Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, overprohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play 
for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.